0: I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you to teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord.
1: A reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 29, starting in verse 13. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and with the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down, shall the potter be regarded as the clay? And the thing made should say to its maker, He did not make me, or the thing formed, say to him who formed it, He has no understanding. It is not yet very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness their eyes, uh, their eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Who By a word make man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Therefore thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall be no more ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they shall sanctify my name they will sanctify the holy one of Jacob and will stand in awe of God of Israel of the God of Israel and those who go astray in the spirit will come to understanding and those who murmur will accept instruction this is the word of the lord hello mission family and shalom to you all
2: i hope and pray that we are all experiencing god's peace during this Difficult and very interesting time. Now, to be honest with you guys, it's a bit surreal to be sitting here at my house recording this teaching instead of doing what we always do, which is gathering uh, with people that we love and listening to God's Word live. But we know that the Bible says that God's Word does not return to Him empty, but it will achieve the purpose for which He sends it. So we trust in that truth this morning. As we quiet our hearts to look deeply at God's word together, separately. I think that makes sense. So, before we jump into the teaching, I invite you to join me in taking the next 30 seconds to breathe deeply and to allow the Holy Spirit to calm your mind and to focus it on the word this morning. If you're at all like me, um, your mind's probably been distracted and preoccupied with things that are going on. I think it's a good practice to allow our minds to be calm to center ourselves on the Lord. Jesus, you are Lord of all. Not if, but when you come, you will restore creation and end the chaos that still exists here on earth. And for that, we are grateful. We submit to your righteous and holy reign in our lives. Be with us today as we study your word. Amen. Now, I've learned quite quickly, thanks to my children, how incredibly hypocritical I can be at times. For instance, it's hypocritical of me to tell my children that they can't eat food on the couch, but for me to then take my food and eat it on the couch. And this literally happened last night. I've learned that it's also hypocritical for me, to tell my children that they need to have good manners at the table. I don't know if any of you have kids have kids that have bad manners at the table. But then it might be hypocritical if when my two-year-old Everett burps and farts on the table, I start laughing at him. It's hypocritical. These are a couple of trivial examples in the grand schemes of things. But the scary thing is, um, it's not just these little trivial things, right? It's How quickly not just our actions get called into hypocrisy, but also our attitudes. And the the hypocrisy abounds in my house when I tell my children that I can't play because I've got things to do around the house. I say it with a scowl on my face. But then later on I have an expectation of them that they would obey with a happy heart when I ask them to clean up their toys. You see, hypocrisy is that state that exists when our actions and our motivations don't match up. And this condition on a spiritual level is so detrimental to our walk with Jesus that Jesus directly confronts it multiple times, including in our text this morning. In today's text, we'll see Jesus in another sparring match, this so delightfully unworthy and undermatched foils, the Pharisees. We'll see Jesus skip right past the surface issue and jump deep into the heart of the matter. Today's text, I see it breaking down into two main parts, and you'll probably note it in your Bible. It's kind of separated into two main headings. And the first part is Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees. And the second part, then, is his commentary to the disciples about that confrontation. And so this morning, I'd like to offer a couple main takeaways that's in around the first section and one main takeaway from the second section along with how we can see those takeaways being important for how we live our lives today. So three points in total. And if you haven't already turned in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, go ahead and turn there, and let's take a look at our text. I've titled today's message, Only Jesus Can. And that'll make sense as we get to our three main points. But let's jump into our text. Mark chapter 7. you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So my first point this morning is this. Traditions and good works can't justify us. Only Jesus can. Traditions and good works can't justify us. Only Jesus can. Now, if irony were made out of strawberries, we'd be making a lot of smoothies this morning. We'll get to that in a second. We'll see why it's so ironic on multiple different levels. But first, let's unpack this carefully. What exactly is going on here? You may recall from our past couple of studies of Mark that Jesus was deliberately and unmistakably identifying himself as the Exodus God, the vanquisher of the chaos monster, the savior of the Hebrews. And we see Jesus embodying the characteristics spoken of in Exodus 34 6. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus was healing people and feeding people, and in an effort to avoid insurrection and anarchy and confusion about why he had come, not as a political leader, but as the better Abraham, as the better Moses, as the better Elijah, as the better David, Jesus commands his disciples that it's time to head for a different part of the country. But even as they crossed the lake, they were followed. And if you look up just at the page, uh, just up the page at Mark 6, 56, it says, And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So the Pharisees, eager to continue to confront this rogue rabbi, Jesus, whom many people are starting to talk about, possibly the fact that he might be the Messiah, they send a representative delegation all the way from Jerusalem with the purpose of keeping an eye on Jesus, presumably, to observe him, to spy on him, and see if there's anything they can use against him. But instead of noticing the miraculous healing that is taking place in marketplaces all over the region, the Pharisees only seem to notice that some of the disciples seem to be going without ritual hand-washing before they eat their lunches. So they decide to ask Jesus about why his disciples think that they can forget the tradition of the elders. You can't see the air quotes. Now the timing of this passage is incredibly interesting. Obviously, with the current state of infectious disease on our planet. We'll get into that again later on, but basically what the Jews at that time would do is they would dip a cup into a jar of clean water, a big jar, like a huge jar, and they would pour out a fist worth of water over each hand. So basically picture a Dixie cup's worth pouring it out over each hand. So we're not really talking here about what you might think of a ritual washing, like a ritual that surgeons would do before they give surgery or uh, a ritual that uh, anyone in healthcare would perform, you know, singing the happy birthday song or um, singing the uh, twinkle, twinkle little star as my kids do. It wouldn't be any sort of washing that would actually get rid of any germs or (coughs) uh, prevent a COVID-19 infection. (coughs) It was more like the same kind of hand washing that my son does. I tell him he has to wash his hands before leaving the bathroom so he can keep playing. But that wasn't even the main point that they were trying to make. Look at the statement again. Why don't your disciples walk according to the tradition of the elders? So, who are these elders they were referencing here? These elders were not the local leaders of the church that, like we have here at Mission. The elders referenced were the Pharisees and the scribes that had for centuries. Been interpreting and implying the Mosaic Law and then offering rules on how it should play out in daily life for the Jews. So, when the disciples were perhaps ignoring this rule, they saw it as a direct threat to their authority. Their concern wasn't for the health of the disciples, it was that their rituals and traditions were being challenged. You see, the Mosaic Law doesn't really offer much on hand washing for everyday Jews. Let's look at the text in Exodus, chapters 30. And 40, um, the first passage that we're going to look at is from Exodus chapter 30, verse 17. So go ahead and turn there. Thirty
3: seventeen
2: 17 says this. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a, bro- a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar he shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with the water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. And if you go forward a few pages to Exodus chapter 40, verse 30 through 32, you'll see that Moses in, in uh, actuality did this. It says, he set the basin between the tent of meaning and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. So basically this prescription here in this text is only for the priests to do only before they minister in the tent of meeting, not for people coming from the marketplace, sitting down to eat their lunch. Um, The only other mention of washing in the Old Testament comes from Leviticus 15, and it has to do with touching a bodily discharge. It has nothing to do with washing before eating. So where does this come from? Why is this such a big deal? Well, in an effort to make sure that they were not breaking God's law, in an effort to be closer to God, the Pharisees and the scribes had expounded greatly on the law of God in the Old Testament, to the point where many of the traditions and rules that they held were no longer even based on Scripture. There were a couple of ridiculous examples of Sabbath traditions held by early Jews. The idea being that uh, you should keep the Sabbath day, uh, keep it holy, you should rest, and not do any work. And so one example... Was allowing people to put out, uh, not allowing people to put out a fire in their own home on the Sabbath because it would be too much work. But they were allowed, uh, if they could, if it wasn't already burned down, to rescue enough food for that day. Other ridiculous examples include not being able to clip your fingernails on the Sabbath or not even checking your garments for fleas on the Sabbath because that would be working. So we see even in these silly examples, there's a ton of hypocrisy. You'll let uh, fleas exist in your garments, but you care a lot about a fistful of water before you eat. It's interesting logic there. But you see what the Pharisees and many other Jews believed at that time was that if they followed the law closely enough, if they performed the right rituals, if they checked the right boxes, if they held to the tradition of the elders, then they would be close to God. And God would accept them into his kingdom. Now, we know in our heads that this isn't the case. But unfortunately, I'm afraid that we often don't let this idea move from our heads to our heart. We know as good Protestants what it says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. That it is by grace only, through faith only, that we have been saved. It's nothing we can do but a gift from Yahweh alone that saves us. And this is true. No amount of rule following can make us close to God or save us. Only his grace draws us in and saves us and allows us to walk in right relationship with him. But how many times do we hear that voice of condemnation in our head saying, Oh, you started a year-long Bible reading plan. You only made it through, let's see, what's today, March 15th? Oh, great. Nice job. Really good job. We hear that condemnation. We think to ourselves, oh, man, I couldn't check that box. God must be angry with me. I must be far from God. Or if you're like me, I think it works often in the other way because I like checking boxes. So I say, hey, you know what? I read my Bible today. I sent my brothers and sisters an encouraging word. I attended my community group this week. I even said hi to new people at church. God must be so proud of me right now. The fact is, God has already showed us the extent of his love and that while we were still sinners, he sent his son, Jesus, to die for us. Our daily activities do not change that he has offered that grace to everyone. Our compliance to the Old Testament law and tradition could never be enough to make us right with God. Turn your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to check out a long passage here. Hebrews chapter 10 Verses 1 through 25. It's to the right in your Bibles if you're following
3: the law. <clears throat> Here's what it says.
2: For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus by new and by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh and since we have a great priest over the house of god let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, that passage is an explanation about how Jesus accomplished what the law could not. The law was just a shadow, not even really a great preview. The author says not a reality. It wasn't even just not even a glimmer of the reality that was to come. And that reality is Jesus. Jesus is our great high priest that offered himself up as a perfect sacrifice for you and for me. He is the reason that we experience God's graciousness and the forgiveness of sins. And it's not a forgiveness that we have to keep applying for day after day, like the blood of bulls and goats, it says. It happened once for all and for all time. And notice what is required of us in both that Ephesians, classic Ephesians verse, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and that Hebrews passage, Hebrews 10, 1 through 25. It's that holding on to Jesus in faith or in faithfulness, that our hearts and actions are reflecting the fact that we have made Jesus our Lord and our King and have willfully submitted to him. Now, we've been very deliberate here at Mission over the past few years to make sure that we are letting Scripture be the primary driver of our liturgy, of our ecclesiology, our missiology, our pneumatology, all of theologies, really. And in doing that, we've had to let go of a number of things that were based purely on the traditions that we grew up with and things that we were comfortable with. And it is also for this reason that your elders, as your elders we've labored tirelessly to apply the character of God to all church discipline scenarios to be gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love for this church for his God's people and we recognize that in the midst of that we are fallible men but we also recognize the power of the holy spirit acting in and through our members not only to hold us to account to Im- to image christ but working to hold each other uh, working to hold each other to account, damage to Christ, and in the midst of that, giving grace and room for reconciliation when we fall tr- when we fall short. I'm so thankful for our body acting in obedience to Christ in this way, even when it makes us uncomfortable. As we continue to grow as a church and in our faith, it's important that we take stock of what we hold on to. Are those things? Traditions that keep us from obedience, or are those things based on Scripture that will cause us to become more like Jesus in our words and actions? Something to think about this week. Traditions and good works can't justify us. Only Jesus can. You see, Jesus' response to the Pharisees didn't let them off the hook. They accused his disciples of something. But Jesus comes right back at them. He doesn't let them continue to believe that they are justified by their self-righteousness, by their piousness, by their ability to keep the law. He forcefully responds to their accusation against his disciples. Let's look back. Mark chapter 7. I want to pick up the text in verse 6. And it says this, And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother whatever you would have gained from me as korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Jesus comes back at the Pharisees with some real smoke here. He starts out with a scathing indictment of their hearts. From Isaiah, the prophet. And this passage comes from the reading we heard Brian read this morning from Isaiah 29. And as is good practice with any Old Testament quotation, it's good to get the context of that passage. So let's look there for some context. Let's turn back to Isaiah 29. We'll pick it up in verse 13.
3: Towards the middle of your bibles twenty
2: nine verse thirteen, and the Lord said, "Because the people draw near with their mouth and honour me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord, your counsel whose deeds are done in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made shall say of its maker? He did not make me, or the thing formed. Say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. And skip down to verse 18. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. You see, the whole point of this prophecy was that the religious people, the leaders of Israel at that time, were merely giving lip service to God, but their attitude an attitude of that should have been of submission and obedience to Yahweh was missing. So what God is saying is that he is going to show his power to the world and let the deaf and the blind and the poor basically replace those who had earthly power. He's going to re- show them his goodness, reveal himself to them through wondrous works, and the power will go to them in God's kingdom. And we will see... Jesus' literal fulfillment of this prophecy in the upcoming chapters of Mark. But here, his criticism of the Pharisees centers on the fact that while they want to talk about it, they don't actually want to be about it. Jesus saw through their faux religiosity, and he exposed them time and time again. My second point this morning is this. We can't change our broken hearts and motivations. Only Jesus can we can't change our broken hearts and motivations. Only Jesus can. Jesus redirects this conversation. The Pharisees want this encounter to focus on the external works that they're doing, or that the disciples in this case aren't doing. But Jesus drills to the heart of the matter. You see, Jesus himself actually ate without washing his hands. In Luke 11, the Pharisees confront Jesus about not washing his hands, and he has a similar rebuke for them at that time. Now, we have to be clear here. Jesus is not saying, don't wash your hands. Okay, given our state of viral affairs... Now, I visited the CDC website several times in the past days and was just this week, obviously, sent multiple memos from my employer from Papa Murphy's from Jimmy John's from American Airlines from eBay from Amazon from any online entity I've ever shared my email with the proper instructions for washing your hands now this is not at all what Jesus is talking about all right Jesus is not making a hygiene commentary here. Although it is very ironic that we're talking about hand-washing this week. I don't know how I drew the short straw on giving this teaching, but I did. So let's not get hung up on the hygiene aspect of hand-washing. Because this commentary is not about external actions. And if we check out the Luke story we'll see that his commentary is actually on the heart. So turn there quickly with me to Luke, Luke chapter 11, Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the very next gospel, the very next book in the Bible. And if you look at Luke eleven thirty-seven, 37, it says this, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Well, that's kind of gross, Jesus. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. And one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also where you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. I love this story. I mean, Jesus doesn't pull any punches here. He just clowns these guys. And I love it when the lawyer pipes up and he's like, Hey, Jesus, in saying this, you've offended us too. He's like, Oh, really? You want the smoke too? He just points out again and again how hypocritical these religious people are. He wasn't concerned about his disciples not going through ritual cleansing, or even himself, because he knew that his disciples, well, 11 of them anyway, were submitted to Jesus as their Lord and King, and that Jesus knew that he was one with his Father. The ritual of hand-washing literally did nothing for him, for Jesus, other than show his participation in a broken and corrupt system. And so this is where... It's a real bummer that we don't have Jesus here on this podcast recording his own statement instead of me because the passage is just dripping with sarcasm, and I would have loved to hear Jesus deliver this blow to the Pharisees. But the main point here is it's not about washing your hands. It's not about doing the thing. It's not about checking the box. It's about your heart. Jesus would have been familiar with Psalm 7 and 8, which says, uh, sorry, Psalm 7, verse 8, which says, The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. You see, God sees our hearts and judges what he sees. You see, here's one of the real ironies of this section of text. Obviously, aside from the fact that we're talking about hand-washing, just as the entire planet is engulfed in a viral pandemic, aside from that, the irony is how often in the Old Testament Yahweh makes plain that his law is... Primarily to direct the hearts of his people towards himself. The actions are meaningless unless hearts are submitted to him. I'm going to move quickly here through a series of passages from the Old Testament to illustrate this. So just jot these down if you're taking notes. The first one is from Hosea six, six. It says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Isaiah one twelve through seventeen says this. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. You see, it's not about the rituals. It's about the heart. Justice. Righteousness. Micah 6, 6 6-8 With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You guys see the irony here? The Pharisees were allegedly familiar with the Scriptures. Now, I say allegedly because they're clearly not acting on their familiarity with the Scriptures. You see, they failed to recognize and deal with their own hypocrisy, the state of their hearts, their motivations. They were in the game for the adoration of men, for power, for status. They weren't in it to promote God's righteousness and justice. You see, no amount of rules or laws have the power to change the way people act. The state of their hearts cannot be changed by laws, legislation. Only God has the power to sanctify us into his image. When we cooperate with His Holy Spirit, I'm going to throw out another set of scriptures here. So jot these down as well if you're taking notes. Refer back to them later on. Just pause the, pause the podcast. It's easy. Just pause it. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit. I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel thirty six twenty six. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now trust me when I tell you I know this to be true from firsthand experience in my classroom. Several years ago I had a long list of rules and expectations, and I like to enforce them pretty consistently. But what I realized was that my students are experts at finding loopholes and manipulating the law, trying to gain the upper hand in the classroom. And if there was no loophole or manipulation to be found, they were expert at deviance and disrespect. So I was convicted, after beating my head against a wall day after day, sometimes not quite literally, to try a more biblical approach to loving my classroom. And this is, largely based on those texts we just looked at. So now in my classroom, I have two rules, just two. Number one, respect your teacher. Number two, love your classmates. That's it. And you can hear it. Hero Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Obviously I'm not saying I'm, God, but I do make the rules in my classroom.
3: But you would be shocked
2: to know that applying biblical principles to my job has made it much simpler. You see, fewer rules didn't increase the amount of already existent sin and anarchy in my classroom. In fact, it has done the opposite. It has allowed me to draw my students into relationship, to ask them the simple questions. Is it respectful? Is it loving? And if the answer is yes to both, then we don't have an issue. But if the answer is no, then I can follow up with them. Why are you doing it? What's your motivation? Is it because you need attention? Do you need just affection? Positive affirmation? Do you feel incompetent? Do you feel anxious? Are you tired? Are you hungry? These are actual questions I ask my students, and as they reflect on their motivations, it becomes clear to me very quickly if they're going to be successful or not. But how often do I ask those questions of myself as I veer from God's law? And his law is that simple. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. How often do I ask myself these questions? Am I anxious? Am I tired? Do I feel incompetent? In those moments when I truly reflect on on that, the Holy Spirit is always gracious to remind me of the truth of God's Word, that I can lay all of my burdens at His feet, that I can take Jesus' yoke, because it is easy and I will find rest for my soul, that I am fearfully and wonderfully made In those moments of true importance, the Holy Spirit will give me the words to speak. He will show me the actions to take and give me the love in my heart for others that I so desperately need as I cooperate with him. The Lord is good and he is gracious.
3: Let's go back to Mark. This is the
2: second half. We're going to pick it up in verse 14. And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? I think sometimes I'm one of those disciples and I ask, what what does it mean, Jesus? What does it mean? But other times I know what it means and I know what I should be doing. When I see myself as that Pharisee where I don't make sure my motivations and my actions are congruent because our motivations have been corrupted by the sin in our lives. The sin that we've done, the sin that's been done to us, the sin that it just exists in this world. And our motivations are not often Christ's motivations. Our motivations are evil thoughts: murder, sexual immorality, theft, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and Hans's favorite foolishness. I say this not to our shame. I say this in love, because we need to be open about the things that motivate us so that we can allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, so we can be honest with each other, holding each other accountable in love to act Christ-like in these things. Now, for me, the thing that struggles, uh, the thing that I struggle with the most is deceit in that list. Now, it's not... A deceit like I'm going to make up a fish story about how I caught a 20-pound fish one time when it was actually only a 2-pound fish. More like a self-deceit. Almost exactly like a pharisee self-deceit. Where in my mind I justify my actions as being good and sanctifying when in reality there are times that I'm like the Pharisees. I'm just an empty cup. The outside looks clean but the inside is Dirty. And I lie to myself about those motivations. And I had a really good illustration here about how I dress that would have worked really well if you could have seen me on Sunday morning. But I'll I'll use this instead. You see, I struggle at times talking about things that I'm doing because I want you all to like me and to think I'm cool. So at times I'll emphasize the things that are going well and I'll downplay or blame shift the things that are not. And I call it kind of managing my brand. You see, my motivations are not Christ's. I'm not simply motivated to be closer to him or to show love to my brothers and sisters. I'm often motivated because I want their approval, and not solely by a response to God's love in my life and a pursuit of his righteousness and justice. Brothers and sisters, are there things in your life, motivations, actions, postures of your heart that don't line up with your submission to Jesus as your Lord and King? I'd invite you to take some time this week to look deeply at yourself and ask those close to you to give you feedback on this as well and to be willing to humbly listen to the feedback you receive. It's not easy to look deeply at ourselves. It often causes pain, doubt, fear, defensiveness. But brothers and sisters, God has already seen the depths of our souls. He's already done the work of redeeming us. And I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. In it, he says this, If our Christianity has ceased to be serious about discipleship, if we have watered down the gospel into emotional uplift, which makes no costly demands, and which fails to distinguish between natural and Christian existence, then we cannot help regarding the cross as an ordinary, everyday calamity, as one of the trials and tribulations of life. We have then forgotten that the cross means rejection and shame as well as suffering. The psalmist was lamenting that he was despised and rejected of men, and that is an essential quality of the suffering of the cross. But this notion has ceased to be intelligible to a Christianity which can no longer see any difference between an ordinary human life and a life committed to Christ. You see, Jesus has invited us to be serious about following him, to be serious about picking up our cross, denying ourselves and coming after him. Falling after him often means enduring suffering. For us in the West, it's hard to imagine, although we can imagine it a little bit better, perhaps this week, than we could last week. But it's not often that physical suffering, like we picture Christ so often being nailed to the cross. But it's that suffering of confronting our brokenness as Jesus was on the cross, enduring the weight of, of our sin, he cried out to the Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? He was broken by our sin, but he still handed himself over in obedience to his Father. And we're called to hand our brokenness over to our King, our Good Shepherd, Jesus. I love what H.F. Byer says in his commentary on Mark about confronting our hypocrisy. He says this. Because of Jesus' sacrificial love, we are safe to begin a process of being completely truthful about ourselves. We are met by a capable physician who comes to us and says, I already know. When Jesus asks the disciples questions, he is not seeking to gain information. Rather, by asking, he seeks to trigger a process of self-understanding. When Jesus asks, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? He confronts his disciples with themselves. He pursues the ultimate purpose of cleansing their hearts so that their inner eyes and ears would open and be amazed about two things, how sick they really are and how powerful and good Jesus really is. We are called to full honesty because the one who has the power to heal us already knows our condition. We can rest assured that we will not surprise our master with anything he will discover in our souls. So why keep it hidden? Why live with it anymore? Why continue a divided life between the outside pretense and inside reality? Why continue that hopeless battle when in fact, the one who calls us has the power to overturn our self-centeredness? Rather than understanding the call to discipleship primarily as a call to exercise and performance, we should see it at the very heart as surrender to the love of God. It is surrender to the liberation of truth, to the exodus from our own autonomy by embracing the substitutionary atonement of Christ. It is the liberation of the soul through the power of Jesus. Without that liberation, there will not be liberty and strength to live godly lives. It is the love and the kindness of God that frees us to surrender. We are not forced into being disciples of Jesus. We surrender to the one who pursues us in sacrificial love, kindness, and deep knowledge of our inner selves. We can trust God's loving pursuit of us because he does this not merely to show us the weight of our inner lives, but to liberate us from it with the cleansing assurance of his love. Man, I love that. Brothers and sisters, he has already said you are worthy of adoption into his family, into his kingdom, and Jesus is calling you to lay those motivations at his feet and to allow your heart to become like his. Brothers and sisters, I'd ask you to think deeply about your walk as a disciple and to seriously consider where your motivations are. As we meet together or speak on the phone this week, confess these motivations to someone you trust and pray that God would work in your heart and in your mind to change those motivations into those full of righteousness and justice. I was encouraged by Psalm 32 this week, the one that Sarah read at the beginning. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. They shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. God has examined our hearts and found us wanting, but his response is nothing less than faithful love through the death of his Son on our behalf and generosity through the gift of his Holy Spirit, which instructs us and convicts us of the truth. Brothers and sisters, may we put our hope not in good works, not in our tradition, but in Christ alone. May we allow the Holy Spirit to renew and regenerate our hearts to be more like Christ in his righteousness and justice. And may we seize upon the grace offered to us by the Father through his Son to walk faithfully in the law of love. And may the peace of God be with you all in abundance this week, Mission Fellowship. I love you all very much, and I look forward to gathering
3: with you soon.